On this episode of Playtime, I bring you a bit from my forthcoming book, A History of Light for the Artist. In this chapter, I explore the power of the printed word. There are lessons here regarding zealotry, propaganda, and the manipulation of truth for purient and nefarious interests, which informs our modern society. The time period represented in this piece describes a number of published works in the first 100 years following the invention of Gutenberg's press in Mainz, Germany around 1455. This is from A History of Light for the Artist, Art, Science, and the Power of the Printed Word. I'm W.C. Turk. I do not feel obliged to believe that the same God who has endowed us with sense, reason, and intellect has intended us to forego their use. Galileo Galilei, in his letter to Grand Duchess Christina. The movable type printing press offered immeasurable progress in European literacy rates. Between 1500 and 1600, literacy in the Netherlands and England jumped fourfold from about 12% to around 53%, and the rate in Germany and France nearly doubled to 30%. Notably, Italy and Spain, the centers of the church and the seat of the Holy Roman Empire, remained essentially unchanged at 20% and 5% respectively. After that, the literacy rate in Eastern Europe and the rest of the world remained abysmally low at or below 10%. There was a cost aspect to that global literacy rate, to be sure. But as technology led to a proliferation of the written word and a collapse in the cost of printing, the recalcitrant growth was both a passive and purposeful decision. As literacy grew, the threats to establish power also grew. That power would learn that if it could not control a population through illiteracy, that it might control its people through the manipulation of information. By 1500, just 50 years after the introduction of Gutenberg's press, there were some 9 million books in print. A century later, that number had grown to nearly a billion. The vast majority of those books were Bibles, feeding a cult-like fervency which grew as a spiritual nationalism. By 1570, Luther's German Bible could be found in virtually every German household but it was, for many, the first and only book of family-owned. Johann Cochleus, 1479-1552, a music theorist, humanist, and Catholic priest, was deeply critical of that single point of reference. Luther's New Testament was so much multiplied and spread by printers that even tailors and shoemakers, yea, even women and ignorant persons, who had accepted this new Lutheran gospel and could read a little German, studied it with the greatest avidity as the fountain of all truth. Some committed it to memory and carried it about their bosom. In a few months, such people deemed themselves so learned 
that they were not ashamed to dispute about faith and gospel, not only with Catholic laymen, but with priests and monks and doctors of divinity. We must caution that while the proliferation of Bibles with the invention of the Gutenberg Press offered fertile opportunity for extremism in the form of anti-Semitism and extremism, there was a net positive to the technology. The rate of literacy steadily increased. Classical works were printed and reprinted. The frontiers of science, medicine, and humanist thought expanded. In 1561, a direct ancestor of mine came to some prominence alongside William of Orange. Pascatius Justus Turk, circa 1520 to 1584, was born to a wealthy family in Eclu, East Flanders, in modern Belgium, a backwater of Ghent. Acquiring his doctorate in philosophy and medicine from the University of Pavia in Italy, Pascatius was a regular guest at the court of Catherine de' Medici, 1519, to 1589. Upon returning to Flanders, Pascatius married the daughter of a well-connected family, Cornelia Velters. She may have been the daughter of Hendrik Velters and Maria van Hespeek. At the outbreak of the Eighty Years' War, the couple sided with Dutch independence and threw their allegiance against William of Orange, to whom Pascatius became a friend and personal physician. They relocated to Bergen-Abzum, a Dutch stronghold during the Eighty Years' War. In Bergen, he joined the Guild of St. Anthony. Pascatius and wife, Cornelia, were rendered in an etching title leading a procession through the village square by Flemish artist Hans Boll, 1534-1593, which was made circa 1570. Boll was heavily influenced in his landscapes by the work of Peter Bruegel. In 1565, Bruegel began an ambitious and feverish project to depict the seasons and months of the year for the notable Antwerp printer Hieronymus Koch. Bruegel died in 1569, having only completed designs for two seasons, spring and summer. Koch approached Boll to complete the project. Boll's designs were engraved by Adrian Kohlert and published by Hans von Leuk in 1581. Pascatius is notable for his 1561 work, on gambling, or about taking care of the desire to play for money, which was printed in Basel. On Gambling is the first medical book to address gambling, however prosaic or metaphysical the prose. In a brief biography in the introduction, Pascatius says that he spent 18 years in Italy. Students could begin university as young as 14 or 15 years of age. He began university while, quote, still a young man, unquote placing his return to Flanders at about 1553. Gambling and games of chance led to addiction, which Pascatius indicates also falling victim. He writes, There are, in the lives of men, two principal evils. The cruelty of love, of course, but also dangerous gambling. They have primarily if not single-handedly, distracted men continuously from the finest occupations from ancient times to the present, especially the young and those whose spirits and characters are the most promising. It is these evils, indeed, which unfortunately for us, ruin them. Both love and ruinous gambling manage to distract us with such ruthlessness. So relentlessly 
and in such an unforgiving way, in order, I believe, to stop any free and healthy man from becoming like God's, that these two evils scarcely have to yield to others. Love, with all of its power and its special character, has been described very often and very well in various ways and with its whole range of feelings and emotions for the greater good of all and to the glory and praise of the authors. But it has thus been helpfully put before the public's eyes as well as in their hands, even as part of the schooling of children. As for gambling, however, in other words, this appetite, this uncontrollable and overpowering design to bet for money, how much fairer it would be that people learned about this even before they learned about love. For gambling overcomes men much earlier and draws them into an unavoidable, more oppressive and more lasting ruin for the rest of their lives. It clings to the very lining of their guts. It burns deep and causes enormous bitter pain. Still, thus alone and little known, like a vast and cruel scourge with obvious and serious loss to mankind, even famous philosophers and poets censure it very seriously. It wheedles its way into the smallest parts of men's lives. From On Gambling, Pescatius Justice Turk. It was a highly literate and sympathetic treatment on the topic of gambling, but relied upon analogical reasoning. That is, it transferred meaning from romantic love by creating a comparison to gambling. It creates a false analogy and a false equivalency between love and gambling addiction. While the premise is rather sophomoric, the real importance is the empathy the author brings to the gambling addict. It is the measure of humanist thought which would ultimately lead Europe to the Enlightenment and the Age of Reason in the 17th and 18th centuries. Pescatius was the first to apply a medical description to compulsive gambling. He correctly identified it as a psychological disorder. He would become the court physician for the Duke of Anjou Alacon, an ally of William the Silent, Prince of Orange, leader of the Dutch Revolt. On March 18, 1582, William was badly wounded by an assassin attempting to collect a substantial reward placed on William's head by the Spanish king, Philip II. Though the pistol misfired, a bullet struck William in the neck. Turk was able to stop the bleeding and save the prince's life. Pescatius Turk died in 1584. The same year, another Philip II loyalist, a Catholic named Balthazar Gerard, would succeed in assassinating William. Reaction to the Reformation varied widely. Violent iconoclasm would flare, smolder, and flare again over much of the next 120 years. The first outbreaks were in Germany, followed by Zurich in 1523, in Copenhagen in 1533, Geneva in 1535, and Augsburg in 1537. The government in England took measures to remove church icons to mitigate the violence. In France, violent attacks against church art by Huguenot Calvinists began in 1560, but were beaten back by local Catholics. In England, Switzerland, and Germany, whole populations were forcibly and autocratically converted. In some instances, Catholics faced persecution, expulsion, and even execution. When Margaret of Parma 
took over control of Brabant, Flanders, and Holland in 1559, conversion to Protestantism was rather low, though many of its local leaders were Protestant. It was the heavy-handedness of the Roman Catholic Holy Roman Emperor Charles V which drove discontent and revolt. The year before iconoclastic violence erupted in the Low Countries, Peter Bruegel painted the massive 37-inch by 63-inch The Preaching of St. John the Baptist, 1565, oil on panel. The painting depicts peasants, Romany, clergy, nobles, and soldiers, the strata of Dutch society gathered around John the Baptizer. The choice of John rather than Jesus was deliberate. It was as if Bruegel is rallying all of the Dutch population with a strong nod to the Protestants and iconoclasts. In essence, making the bold statement that they are all baptized to face the coming Spanish storm. Iconoclasm was a consequence of the proliferation of the Lutheran Bible. For many, it was the first and only book they knew or owned. Where scripture had once been the solitary domain of nobles and clergy, people were now steered through the Luther Bible. Feudalism was collapsing, with less and less tolerance to be used or punished in the short-sighted policies and warring squabbles among the ruling elite. The population had violently blamed its Jewish minority during the worst periods of plague, but there was a growing sense that policies and attitudes by the nobility were in part to blame for the widespread death rate. Indifference by the ruling elite cloaked in the church, poor harvests, and climate fluctuation fed peasant suffering. Principles of humanism and classical thought sowed the seeds of democracy and liberty, which was often met with violent rebuke from the Holy Roman Emperor. But if the Bible was to be the basis for Western law, then every life, peasant, clergy, man, woman, and ruling class, were of equal value. Jesus was held up as an everyman, which gave agency and consequence to the individual. That was not a truth the ruling class of the Holy Roman Empire would adhere to. The choke point was literacy and self-expression. Luther had crafted a perspective of Christianity which, by default and fiat, empowered the common person. And that was a direct result of Gutenberg's press. Syntax here is critical. Consequence implies intent. New technology is neither benign nor malignant, necessarily. The Stone Age gave humanity spears and arrow points which were used for hunting and fishing, but also warfare. Literature indemnified our storytelling culture, but helped deify rulers. Settled societies resulted in empire, but also gave us the arts. The internet led to the unprecedented and near-instantaneous connection of the world, but also facilitated misinformation and extremism. Artificial intelligence could prove a paradigm-changing tool or a terrible curse. Garbage in, garbage out. To exist, empire depends on nationalist propaganda. That was true for the Roman Empire, the British and colonial empires, and was essential for the Holy Roman Empire. For the latter, nationalism centered around the church in particular. The church was where the ruling class galvanized and sanctified 
their privilege and position. Adherence and loyalty necessitated an iron-fisted approach to dissent and deviation in any form. That might come in the form of excommunication from the Pope or by the armies of the Emperor. Galileo Galilei, 1564-1642, serves as an example of the Empire's potency. Earlier, we spoke about glass as the bridge to our feedback loop between the micro and the most distant objects of the universe. A Florentine glassblower, Salvino Armati, is credited with creating the first eyeglasses in the 13th century. It turns out that Armati had little or nothing to do with eyeglasses and owes his erroneous reputation to an unfortunate and false attribution by a late 17th century writer. The convex lens, in fact, had been used for magnifying the written word for centuries. The medieval Muslim scholar Al-Hazan discussed the convex lens in his book on optics, written in the early 11th century. Al-Hazan is believed to have built upon Ptolemy's work in optics from the 1st century BC. Still, it seems, the invention of eyeglasses occurred in Italy sometime around or near the end of the 1200s. In 1352, Venetian painter Tommaso da Modena, 1326-1379, painted the French cardinal Hugh of Saint-Cher, circa 1200-1263, studying the scripture with a pair of eyeglasses. Fast forward to Middleburg, centered on the peninsula overlooking neighboring Antwerp's access to the sea, in 1602, a German Hans Lippere, 1570-1619, became a Dutch citizen. Six years later, in 1608, Lippere became the first person to patent the refracting telescope, which was initially called the Dutch perspective glass. Lippere's perspective glass had a 3x magnification. News of Lippere's telescope was noted throughout Europe, including at Pisa, by Galileo. Galileo quickly saw the commercial possibilities and improved on the design, increasing its magnification to 30x the low end of modern amateur telescopes. Galileo offered to sell his telescope to the Venetian navy with the selling point that it could spot enemy vessels over the horizon, pointing it at transient planets. Galileo discovered the moons of Jupiter, as well as the phases of Venus, indicating that, like Earth, it too moved around a stationary sun. It was hardly a new idea, and could be quite simply arrived at by observing the constellations and stars as they move through the sky. Eventually, every year at precisely the same time, those stars would inevitably fall lower and lower to the horizon to disappear behind the sun. But like 2D rendering and the abstraction of writing, it would require a leap of intellect and knowledge. Just as humanity needed to wrest itself from the individual at the center of its own universe, so too the earth upon which we stood needed to take its proper place in the universe. The first known person to infer that the earth was not the center of the universe, geocentric, was the Greek mathematician and astronomer Philolas, circa 470 to circa 385 BC. Philolas believed that the earth and sun both rotated around a central fire. A century later, Aristarchus of Samos, circa 310 to circa 230 BC, moved the sun to the center of the universe, heliocentric. A pole, Nicholas Copernicus, 1473 
1543 would reinvigorate the debate between geo and heliocentrism. At 18, Copernicus attended the University of Krakow in the Department of the Arts, where he studied astronomy and mathematics, as well as the foundation in Aristotelian philosophy. Copernicus consumed the work of classical mathematicians like Euclid, but it was the work of the German astronomer Regiomontanus, 1436-1476, which would lead him to his greatest discovery. Regiomontanus is reputed to have arrived at a heliocentric model of the universe before his death. Copernicus was deeply influenced by his work, and sometime around 1541 was satisfied that his seminal work, on the revolutions of the heavenly spheres was complete. Copernicus's heliocentric model of the universe was at first embraced by Pope Clement VII in Rome and criticized by Martin Luther's more blustery collaborator, Philippe Melanchthon. In 1545, a Dominican named Giovanni Tolisani in Florence denounced Copernicus. Tolisani wrote, How could the earth hang suspended in the air were it not upheld by God's hand? By what means could it maintain itself unmoved, while the heavens above are in more constant rapid motion? Did not the divine maker fix and establish it? Given the times, scientific knowledge, and the sway of scripture informing virtually everything, it was hard to argue with that logic. The tide with the Roman Catholic Church had turned against Copernicus and heliocentrism. For the church, the matter was settled in favor of geocentricism. This was the storm that Italian astronomer, mathematician, and engineer Galileo Galilei was confronted with in the first half of the 17th century. But Galileo's problem, in part, lay less with his argument as much with his own ego. As we have seen, no empirical data, that is, data derived from repeatable measurement of observation, had been presented to the church, apart from Copernicus, that was able to unseat the church's accepted view on geocentricism. In fact, the Bible and scripture are silent on the issue and never once mentions the earth as the center of the universe. Interestingly enough, it was the fellow astronomer that helped undermine Galileo's arguments. A Dutch astronomer, Tycho Brahe, 1546-1601, preferred the geocentric model after failing to reconcile Copernicus's theory with the physics of Aristotle, whom Brahe considered foundational. Brahe countered that if the sun was at the center of the universe, then an observable and measurable stellar parallax, or the movement or shift of nearby stars against the background of farther stars, should be observed. Euclid's geometry indicated that the further away stars were, that the parallax would be negligible. Ignoring this, Brahe dismissed Copernicus's heliocentric model and by extension undermined Galileo's theory. The church was only too motivated to remain with the status quo. This isn't a relitigation of Galileo versus the Roman Catholic Church. Galileo was accused of heresy and investigated by the Roman Inquisition in 1615. The Inquisition subsequently falsely concluded that Galileo's ideas contradicted Holy Scripture, and qualified as heresy. In 1623, Galileo ingratiated himself with the new Pope, Urban VIII, by dedicating a response by Orazio Grassi's support of Brahe's model 
with the assayer. Urban was delighted and initially supported Galileo. Undaunted, in 1632, Galileo reasserted his position with the publication of Dialogue Concerning the Two Chief World Systems. Like Petrarch's Dialogues with the posthumous St. Augustine, Dialogue was structured as a series of conversations between Salviardi, who argued for the Copernican view, Sagredo, an open-minded layman, and Simplicio, an adherent to the geocentric view. Galileo's principal blunder was in applying a conversation he had with Urban to Simplicio. On June 22, 1633, Galileo was found vehemently suspect of heresy. Further, he was ordered to abjure, curse, and detest the view that the earth was not at the center of the universe. Galileo would spend the remainder of his life under house arrest. The Inquisition banned the publication of any further works by Galileo, but that hardly proved a deterrent. In 1638, he completed a new book, Discourses in Mathematics, Demonstrations Relating to Two New Sciences, a summation of 30 years of physics inquiry. Though Galileo failed to find a publisher for discourses in Germany, France, and Poland, it was eventually published in Leiden, South Holland, beyond the reach of the Inquisition. The official theological representative for the Republic of Venice and a supporter of Galileo feared that printing the book in Venice might cause trouble for Galileo. In 1639, after discourses sold out in Rome, perhaps fearing a reprisal would encourage sales, or perhaps for the benign nature of the book, the Inquisition did not take any action against the 74-year-old Galileo. Throughout this narrative, we have seen that any new communication technology may be abused or perverted. The invention of writing led to the demagogue and empire builders to the detriment of the individual. Religion became a means of control for empires and sovereigns, always with a bottom-up flow of power and wealth. The technology itself is benign and carries potential for the greatest social good. We may describe humanity's pre-technological era as ending with the most impactful piece of technology, the Gutenberg Press, and beginning to change the paradigm from illiteracy towards full literacy. The species' abysmally low literacy rate through much of human history was as much a practical expression regarding a society which had seen historically sluggish progress. For the average European peasant, life was not substantially changed from their ancestors in antiquity. They were still beholden to the whims of royalty as much as to the cyclical planting and harvest seasons. Animal husbandry, medicine, farming, tool-making, and building construction for the vast majority of the species had hardly changed for thousands of years. The upper classes saw Renaissance thought, humanism, and the proliferation of illuminated manuscripts as exclusive to their privilege first and a means of control over the masses second. Gutenberg's innovation would begin to change all that, but there were dangers, not in the technology, but in those who controlled the type, level, and quality of written information. And 
the next episode, I talk about the abuse of the written word and the so-called witch hysteria. You're listening to Playtime. I'm your host, W.C. Turk. If you like this program, hit the subscribe button for notifications about future programs and guests. And please, share this podcast. Until next time. Oh, 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 oh,